Hi, welcome to Conversations.Buzz. I'm Dave Williams. You may not know the names Bill Rogers and Camille Dixon, but you very well know their voices. Since the early 1990s, they have been the voices of Disney, the voices that welcome you and your family to the happiest places on earth. It's easy to hear why they were chosen. Their voices are rich, warm, and ageless. They are superb voice actors with a lifelong understanding of how to use their voices, how to deliver phrases, and tweak timing ever so slightly. They are truly masters at their craft. And here's the weird thing. They're married and have been for many years. That's just another piece of Disney magic that has blessed them and us. Here they are, Bill Rogers and Camille Dixon. You, Bill, are the voice of Disneyland Parks. Is that right? I'm and the voice of Disney. Disney. Yes. So what, what all does that encompass? Well, besides uh, projects for both park, both domestic parks and uh, at one time, the Tokyo Disneyland, uh, I, I do a lot of announcements for, for parks and then for uh, a division called DCCR, which includes the D23 uh, fan club and uh, corporate, events. corporate events, which, you know, include most of the service awards that are given out to non-park employees or cast members. Um, <laughs> and then uh, on top of that, Camille and I are, are writing a book called Walt's Voices, the history of voiceover at the Walt Disney Company. Oh, how wonderful. This thing is going to be about the size of the Oxford on a Bridge Dictionary. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> and it's it's being published by Disney, so we're really excited. We're going yeah. with the Disney archives to you know go back in time and look at how casting choices were made and um, all those sorts of things. It's really yeah. really been a fun project. And Camille, you have uh, you have uh, been the voice of Disney's California Adventure. And and what else with that company? So, yeah, since 2012. Um, and then, you know, some projects here and there for Walt Disney World. Um, I got to do, they had an alternate ending in 2014 to the Illuminations Reflections of Earth holiday show. That show was narrated by Walter Cronkite. And so when they wanted to change the ending, he wasn't around anymore. And they thought maybe a female voice would be a good contrast. And um that was a little intimidating to think, you know, that I'm going to follow Walter Cronkite, but that was that was really special. Yeah. I think that'd be intimidating for anybody. Oh gosh. Heaven. Robin yes. Williams included, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. This is very weird. So you you're married and I know you have been for some time. How did you find each other? Oh, that's a good story, <laughs> madam. A client. <laughs> Yes, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, um, I've been commuting between Southern California and Salt Lake City for 26 years. And uh, so, you know, in the early days of that, I didn't have my own home studio. I got a, a, you know, booked a commercial in Salt Lake for a division of the Kroger Company, did the spot. And then the next week I was in Orange County and they called again. Even my agent was surprised. She thought it was just one spot. 
And so she said, well, you know, Camille doesn't have her own studio in Southern California. And they said, no problem, we'll find one. Booked me at Bill's studio. And then about six years later, uh, still going in there every other week to record, uh, we started dating. And then we were married in 2010. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it really sounds like, uh, you know, a typical Disney uh, yes. princess love story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. For sure. She, she, was, she walked into my studio and went. <laughs> One of the things that was so cool for both of us is, you know, after the recording session, we'd sit around and talk radio. You know, we had a shared love of radio and that's where both of our careers began. And, and so, yeah, when, when 2006 rolled around, it was, yeah, we knew each other pretty well. So. All right. I also know Bill that you've done a lot of voiceover work uh, for movies uh, in in particular for animation. Um, And, and and Camille, you've done the same sort of thing, although you've also actually been uh, on camera in some feature roles. Yeah, most of my on-camera stuff has been for um, hosting, mostly with PBS. And actually, PBS is what brought me to Southern California, the the uh, PBS SoCal uh-huh. that's now based in, in L.A. And so that's really the bulk of what I've done on camera. Uh, and I just did one recently that will be sent out nationally for, um, it's called Classicalia. It's a competition for young musicians that was recorded in Vienna. So, and I'm on the pledge breaks for that one. So kind of a fun thing that PBS is trying. So for both of you, whichever, whichever of you wants to start, um, how much of your time is involved uh, with Disney work and how much of, of it is involved with uh, other, other projects? And I assume, and let me, let me just make this assumption, but you can correct me. Are you working from home to produce all of this? Yes. Yes. Amazing. We have we have a a lovely set of studios both in Los Angeles and in Salt Lake City where, you know, she started commuting from there and during the pandemic we figured who wants to be in Southern California, which has <laughs> happened to a lot of people quite frankly. And uh we went back to the house in in Salt Lake mm-hmm. and uh and ran out the whole thing from there but you know the the interesting part about doing projects for for any part of Walt Disney Company is that it's an ongoing usually about an hour to 2 hours a week kind of thing you know mm-hmm. i mean there are days when for instance when we're doing live events that that will be there all day and you know there <laughs> are are uh, cost of doing business increases considerably during those days. But what we do uh, always has been uh, a really interesting mix of at home, on site, and at other people's studios. As you well know, people in the voiceover industry until the uh, until the late 1990s, didn't have home studios. Right. And uh, I was I was lucky enough to start my own voiceover studio in a in a part of Santa Ana that I just dearly loved. And it's, you know, I've been doing things from a remote studio ever since I got to California in 1986. So um the home studio 
later on the home studio with the ISDN box, which uh, yeah. for, for those of you not in the broadcast business, you uh, probably have never heard of one of these things, but there was a box that allowed me to to hook my microphone to another person's recording setup somewhere far, far away, or sometimes down the block. Uh, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, they were they were a considerable investment, and I had done so. One of the reasons she found a a, a studio to go to in Orange County was because uh, even though I was in Santa Ana, which of course starts with an S, it was right next door to another co- uh, town in in uh, Orange County called Anaheim. Yeah. That starts with an A. And when they, <laughs> when they start looking for things, everything goes alphabetically. And so there I was. <laughs> you, make, you make it sound so simple. Listen, well, <laughs> I, believe I, me. Trying to afford all of the stuff that was required for a recording studio, especially in those days, was just ridiculous. And so I, can, I can imagine that there was a lot of uh, uh, self, uh, I don't want to say doubt, but. Uh, you oh, know. you question, you question every yeah. tiny little yeah. expenditure. Yeah. Uh, when, when I first moved to California, I set up the, the studio in in my home in Garden Grove and uh, I brought with me a couple of aging tape recorders that uh, that included one that that uh, played four track and the then the tape was half an inch wide as opposed to the you know the the home version of a four track recorder usually goes on quarter inch tape and has all the fidelity of the tin can with the string um <laughs> But uh, as as I went along, uh, I, I tripped over some really amazing equipment. And I will tell you the story of a, a, a used four-track tape recorder that showed up in a, in, in a place in Los Angeles. And I was looking at the time to replace my aging piece of junk. And... Uh, and I tripped over this thing, and it was at the time it was ten thousand dollars. Oh and, Lord! Yeah, I know. <laughs> and that's and that's ten thousand dollars in nineteen eighty-seven. Yeah, term. yeah, yeah. Like so uh, forty years ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we haggled. The the owner of the machine and I haggled for a, for about five minutes, and I think I got him down to to about $8,000, which was kind of nice, and um, took the thing home, did some research, because all of a sudden, in the back of it, something that I hadn't noticed before was one of those uh, one of those stickers that said Capitol Records. Really? Mm-hmm. So I... I uh, used. I had, <laughs> used. Yes. And I... I Called a, a guy who would who was probably going to know these things. He was my <clears throat> in those days. I called him my insulting engineer because he he was a know it all. But he had worked at almost all of the studios in Los Angeles, and I sent him a picture of it, and he said, "Oh, holy cow! Do you know what you got?" <laughs> I said, "No." They would send four track masters from England to California for remastering 
the Beatles. Oh. I'm pretty sure that this particular tape recorder was used just for that purpose, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, that's that's but those those things, you know, you start you start thinking about how am I gonna do all of this? And it turned out to be pretty cool. I mean, you know, yeah. I started out with some great clients. I had a uh Cox owned television station in Pittsburgh that I did did all the the announcements for on a on a weekly basis. And uh and I did uh commercials for the Hoover Company, which had its uh its local origination agency in Pittsburgh. So I brought that with me to California as well and did uh, lots and lots of commercials. But, you know, they never showed up nationally. They showed up for, uh, for instance, the, the Bon Marche in, in St. Louis or, uh, you know, a, a, a place in Dallas or, or Los Angeles mm-hmm. or. It was really a lot of fun because I I showed up all over the country doing these uh, these Hoover commercials where you know you can find all those savings at Kmart. Yeah. <laughs> you both you was, both you, know, you both you both have backgrounds in radio. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Camille, tell me about yours. Where did you start out? How did you so get where I you start, are now? I started out at just a, a little two year college in southeast Idaho. I was a music major and uh, singing. And I quickly realized I was never going to make a living as a singer. It just really wasn't going to happen. And an opportunity came up to work at the campus classical music station. Um, first to host, you know, just one afternoon a week. And then um, one of my professors was the music director at the station. And he showed up in our music theory class and said, I, I'm looking for someone to write, host and produce a children's weekly classical music show and anyone who wants to audition please let me know why, why so, do colleges I, insist on having classical radio stations <laughs> it's something that no college student has ever been ever listened I know. to i know yeah you know, they, it's funny they they did have a they had a rock station and they had classical oh okay. but I, I think it's it was a it was a little college owned by the lds church and so oh, that okay. was you know, kind of a focus for them yeah yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, plus, plus just a, a nod to the idea of education, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. But it was it was the signal was strong enough that it was kind of kind of served as the um, community public radio station as well. So there there was some community interest in in classical music. But so I did that for the the first year of college, and uh, you know I ended up getting married and moving away and not thinking, okay, that was a fun adventure. I've never, you know, I'll probably never do that again. But then fast forward a couple of years to, uh, I married a guy from Provo, Utah. So we settled in Provo, Utah, and he went off to interrogator school. I was starting back up at school, needing, again, thinking that, you know, maybe I could do music composition this time. Excuse me for interrupting. What the hell is interrogator school? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I just sort of glossed over that, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So he he went to he joined the National Guard. Um he wanted to learn languages. And there was an opening in the Arabic program. Uh-huh. So we actually went to Monterey, California for a while uh for him to study Arabic and in the Army Language School. When was and this? What year? 
This was 1987. Okay, it's kind of all coming together here. Yeah, it is. And he had actually <laughs> wanted to learn Russian, but you know, there were the Russian program was completely full. And yeah. <laughs> at the time, he said, "Besides, we're going to go to war with Russia someday, and I don't want to. I don't want to know Russian." <laughs> he ended up, of course, in the in the Gulf. You know, during the uh, during the whole Kuwait yeah. Gulf War. Um, as a as a an interpreter and an interrogator after having gone to interrogator school in okay. Arizona. So you know very but, interesting. I'm sorry, dude. Water, for, water, oh no, no waterboarding one oh one. No. I anyway, back, back no, to that, your story. No, no, no. <laughs> so, you know, I started school. We had two little kids by that point. Um he's off in Arizona at this four month training program and the army has a way of not keeping up with you when you make a move. So there were no paychecks coming in and they said, yeah, it could take two to three months. I needed a job. I went to the campus employment office and said, I'll be, I'll do anything janitorial, whatever you've got. And there was a listing for their classical music station hiring for overnights. And so I got that job and ended up leaving school yet again, never finished college but did that for um, about eight years. So moved into daytimes, then mornings, and then hosting the live Utah Symphony broadcasts on Saturday nights. And that was a whole lot of fun. How did that get you to uh, doing commercial work and, you know, voiceovers? Yeah, as so often happens, you know, people had heard me on the air and then would call and ask what I do this spot or this narration. And I do have to give credit to one of my bosses who was a colonel in the Air Force Reserve in the media unit at Hill Air Force Base. He recommended to his colleagues that maybe the young men in training would pay better attention to a female voice (laughs) than they would a male voice. So I started doing narrations for the Air Force, you know, F-16 maintenance and repair and, um, you know, evasive techniques, you know, to avoid being captured and fire prevention and all sorts of really interesting projects. But they paid the bills. Yeah. Really cool. And when I say interesting, I'm not being facetious. I absolutely love doing narration and learning something every time. Her children were just over the moon learning how to do a FOD walk. That's right. <laughs> we did incorporate these practices, the foreign object debris walk, where we, you know, <laughs> around the house and pick up all the little bits of the foreign uh, objects. Stuff. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Something I learned from the Air Force. All right. uh, <laughs> Bill, let's let's go back. To, let's go back to your your radio career. Now, you uh, you were from the East Coast, right? I am from South Dakota. Oh, <laughs> our friend, our friend Bill Rogers, who is an anime voice actor, is from New Jersey. Oh, so, okay, two, that's two of them, I, and I, they're both in L.A. I now. mentioned, I mentioned to my, you know, because he he and I had had, had a, a brief correspondence before we met face to face, and then he he was looking for representation in Los Angeles. And I went to my agent uh, and said, how'd you like to represent not one, but two, Bill Rogers? And he goes, no. Well, before we started talking, I just, uh, I spent half an hour studying the wrong guy. So uh, online, he's an interesting fact. It is very easy to do. And and he and I, (laughs) 
sometimes get mail in, intended for the other. And uh, it, you and know, even a client, a potential yes. client will call someone called Bill's, this Bill's agent uh, about a video game. And even, and the agent said, ah, I mean, our bill is great. He's awesome, but it was but a he role. Hates video games. But will not do video games. So <laughs> he knew it wasn't for the <laughs> for this guy. <laughs> All right, let's back. Let's back up to square one with you, then, Bill. Yes, uh, I grew tell, up. Tell me about your start and how you got to where you are now. Yep, I grew up in the hamlet of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, in those days, a, a town populated by at least thirty thousand souls, and um, and. From the day I back, you know, from the day I can remember, uh, I have was always interested in the radio, not television. Radio was just about everything. Yeah. And in those days, uh, I I really fell head over heels with the idea of classical music because it was always in the house. And uh, when I went off to a, a a summer school at the University of Spoiled Children, also known as USC. <laughs> um, I was I was introduced to the campus radio station, which was fully licensed and had its uh, had its transmitter right there on campus. And uh, KUSC in those days they estimated because of the strength of the transmitter and uh, and the number of people in the in the greater metropolitan area that at least. 500 people just by chance could be listening to this radio station. So I snapped at it and uh, went back to school at USC and, um, and they, they said, well, you know, all the pronunciations, so you don't have to, we don't have to worry about you saying Debussy or or Mozart. Yeah. And, so I started. I started broadcasting for KUSC FM, and um, it was a lot of fun. So when I got back to Sioux Falls for the last years of of uh, high school, uh, I had already had some some uh, interesting adventures, and was asked to be a part of uh, a radio station that was AM, FM, and TV, as is. Sometimes the case in smaller markets, and uh, and and that was where I started in commercial radio. Hmm. And my focus at that time, because my mentor was such an incredible editor, and in those days you didn't edit with a computer; you edited with a razor blade right. and a grease pencil. And and I got to learn how to do that. The white tapes, oh, with tapes, and it was so much fun. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I am really grateful that I got to be a part of radio in the days where, where we were still using tape. Yeah. You know, that just, I mean, there's digital is so easy and, but it was, I'm so well, glad that I cut, learned yeah. how to, how to make an edit when it was hard to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, how to make, really how to make of, reverse, reverse echo. Oh yes. By using oh, quarter inch that? tape. Yeah. The, uh, the, the 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 you know all of the things that you could do with a piece of quarter inch tape were amazing yeah. especially if you had three tape recorders and and we did you know uh, i also learned at the same time because it was television and because this was a a, a very well stocked uh facility uh that uh, i learned how to use a can of freon to edit 2 inch 
high band video as well. Wow. That that was amazing. You know, I, mean, I think like, it Freon has uh, has some uh, some part of Freon that's 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 like WD forty, right? Yeah, pretty much. You, yeah. You, you, even with the little nozzle, the the little spray hose that WD forty <laughs> gives you, it's the same, almost exactly the same thing. It leaves just enough residue on the tape that you can pull it off the head, put it down on 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 a, on a block and and cut it with a razor, <laughs> and that because you never know how close you come to the end or the beginning of a frame. And for those people, not to go too far into the weeds here, but for those people who do television, the, the editing frame by frame these days digitally is just a piece of cake. But trying to find the beginning of a frame or the end of a frame so yeah. that you don't end up with a, mm-hmm. with a, a you know. Yes, there are no yeah. markers. No, no. <laughs> Yeah, so, and that's why I that's why I won't bother to try to edit the uh, video here for this uh, for the YouTube <laughs> version of this conversation. So, look, so, yeah, I've been, I'm sorry, I've been editing audio for now. most that of my was... life, but I, you know, the, the video stuff is beyond me. Um, so, it, how did you wind up working for Disney, both of you? Okay, this is this is a, a really lovely story. I moved from Pittsburgh. Who, where I was doing morning radio and, yeah. and, and, uh, um, what type of radio? Uh, it was, uh, adult contemporary. Uh-huh. We were, we were one of the very first ACs, as they called it, in, uh, in Pittsburgh. This was in the late, uh, late seventies, early eighties. And, you know, it was it was a time when it was easy to do because you could play a little bit of country. You could play Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. Right. And then you could also play 10 CC. Yeah. You know, so. Sure. It was a lot of fun. But I came I came to California with the idea that I was going to start a company that that created commercials for radio stations. So their production department, which was always full of whiny disc jockeys who didn't want to do ads that weren't going to show up on the air, uh, that I'd make it cheap enough that they could do that. I also went through Orange County with a fine tooth comb and found uh, a large number of, uh, in those days, video editing companies. And one of them turned out to be a gold mine. I had more fun. I did everything from uh, narrating uh, safari videos to uh, to doing commercials for the American Bowling Congress. You know, it, it, was, it was just amazing. And uh, always with an idea in mind that this was uh, low budget, <laughs> so, uh, the, there was owned by a man and a woman, um, a married couple, and they finally decided they'd had enough of each other. And when they split the sheets, they just, they just said, all right, we're not going to do this anymore. And, and she said, one of these days, I'm going to be able to do something for you. That's as nice as all of the things you've done for us. And I said, it's lovely to hear, you know, how does that make me money? Nonetheless, she calls me a couple of years later and she said, "Um, I've, I've started working with a fellow who I, who I married and we are, we are just bringing in a new audio partner and he has all this fabulous digital equipment. Now this is 1991. 
And uh, she says, I want you to come over and take a look. I said, yeah, I am, if nothing else, a gadget freak. And uh, I wandered over and, and got the full the full lay of the land, as it were. I mean, it was, I'd been there before because I had done some narrating for other projects for the edit, uh, the the video part of the company. But um, as I'm walking out the door after the tour, the guy goes, "Uh, I understand you know Jack Wagner. Now, Jack at the time was the voice of Disneyland. And I said, well, you know, I've, I've never met the man, but he is my hero. Yeah. What do you mean? Well, this is a guy who's managed to make a grandfather, an authoritarian, and a ringmaster all work together. Mm-hmm. And they have they have created a feeling that, that I have never heard any place else. Disneyland is is Jack's it's his greatest achievement. And he goes, Oh, well, I want you to read this. And he hands me a, the piece of copy that says, ladies and gentlemen, boys and wor- girls, in just five minutes, Disneyland presents the Main Street Electrical Parade. Now, the lights will be dim so that you may fully enjoy all that is blah, 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 blah. And I read it. He says, one more time, do it, do it, make these changes. I did a second take. And uh, he says, come out. He says, you got to know that I don't make the final decision. But by Thursday, you'll know that you're in the new voice of Disneyland. Wow. Jack is retiring. Wow. When was this? This was 1991. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, for, I mean, I, I can I can speak for uh, uh, we have a, we have a lot of radio people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are uh, watching and listening. I can speak for all of them. I think it's like if I had, I've been in this business for 54 years, been on the air, done commercials for everybody I could think of. But if I had one job, if there was one dream, if there was a, a gold ring I could reach for, your job would be it. Yeah, I get it. I, I get mean, it. you know, I've spent, I spent a lot of time at Disneyland, of course. Um, uh, my son, who you know, yes. works for the company now because of of his beginning when when he was very young and it's just such an iconic place and such a job and i go into uh, i go into the, the park one one of the other parks and listen and i just i feel all warm and fuzzy and happy and so envious <laughs> of the voice you know what I wanted to do? I used to do this every time we get on the the tram. When we were in still in Southern California, we had uh, season passes for a long time, and uh, my wife and I would just go. Uh, we would just go down. For, we would go down to the park for lunch. Just go in for lunch and hang around and sit and watch the watch the families go by. But we would always go from the parking lot to the park, you know, on the tram. And I said, I want to be the voice of the tram, and I I used to practice it. So here you go. We're now arriving at downtown Disney. Please wait for the tram to come to a full stop. Take your belongings, lower your head, watch your step, and move your ass. (laughs) Hire that man. Definitely Disney-approved language. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) You know, it's like... (laughs) I love it. 
Well done. Right. And if well you done. brought your kids along, what the hell were you thinking? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was that that for me has always, you know, the adults. I figure, if, you know, if you if you work on the head, the, the, the body will come along. Yeah. Yeah. And I I tell the story. This is and I and I told her it used to be. Uh, during a during a period of time when Disneyland uh, actively solicited high school, junior high school, and in some cases college musical groups to come and perform either on Main Street or in in the old days at Carnation Plaza, yeah, would, you know they, we'd get choruses, we'd get marching bands, we'd get all kinds of stuff, and uh, there were days when I would read up to 70 pages oh. of announcements. Yeah. Wow. And, and I, you know, I, I never really spent a whole lot of time thinking about it because frankly, this was the gig. <laughs> okay. This is, this is not a bad thing. And she came with me once upon a time and she goes, I just heard you talk for almost two hours and <laughs> the same amount of energy at the beginning as you did at, you know, or at the, the, at the end as you did at the beginning. How is this possible? And I said, well, I, I have a, a woman in my head at the, you know, when I do these things, she's, uh, she's sitting on the curb on Main Street, USA. It is a hot spring afternoon. She has on a sweatshirt that says, I'm with the band or something of that, that nature. And she's just had it. She's been herding cats all day because she's the, she's the lady who makes sure that the suit of sousaphones get to where they belong, that you, you keep the, the boys out of the girls' bathroom and yada, yada, yada. And she's just, she's had it. My job is to say, Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's your kid marching down Main Street, USA. And at about that time, it's like somebody hit her with a cattle prod. And she stands up as straight, just ramrod straight. She takes off her glasses. She gives it this shot. She's wiping the tears from her eyes because now she knows it's all been worth it. And that's my job is to make sure that happens every time. It's amazing, Cami. I want to I want to come back to you here in just a second, but Bill, you just hit upon something that uh, has been very important to me for a very long time, and uh, that is uh, the fact that when you become a really good announcer, the next step is to become a human being again. To and and I have told um, at least three program directors that I've worked with over the last thirty years have come to me from time to time going, you know, I really like this uh, new hire, but she needs a little help. I don't know what it is. She's, she's, well, I was, I was thinking maybe you told uh, program directors something else. But oh, that's... well, the, yeah, well, yeah, but <laughs> no, but, but, but I always came back to the same thing. And this is based upon my uh, personal background in, in community theater. I would say, well, you know, we're in Los Angeles. Why don't you get her an acting, an acting instructor? Because then you learn how to use your voice. Yes. You, you know, you, it, 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 I mean, you learn how to use your whole body and, and become another person. But that's the difference is really putting your head in, 
in a different place. And that's something that, that radio in itself does not teach and never has. Never has. Yeah. We, from time to time, we've done an introduction to voiceover workshop after we get enough people asking us, Hey, how do we get into voiceover? We sort of <laughs> gather them together and then do a, about a six hour presentation of, you know, what, what you need to know. We also, we also started. include plenty of coffee because this gets really boring. You know, <laughs> <No>, it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, the point being, uh, we tell a lot of people that coming from radio to get into commercial work, we had a lot that we had to unlearn. Yes. And that acting, even if we never play a character, you know, in the typical way, you know, in animation or on camera or anything like that. Acting is going to be essential and it's going to really, really help you interpret even a, a grocery store commercial. It's amazing how that, that makes a difference. So it, we gives, really... you, it gives you the confidence to step outside yourself and mm-hmm. be the person that you're representing. Yes. yes totally. Yes. And it, and it really does make a difference. I remember listening to you at KABC and also at KNX. Uh, and, and there was a, you know, your ability to bring bad news to the poor and 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 still make it feel like it was something that I could get close to was was something that I just uh, no wonder well, I was, you, I, thank yeah. you I was trying to make it palatable for myself. Well, we get that you know four hours every day in the morning. Oh, First thing we yeah. do is like I I I made a lot of a uh, lot of jokes about this on the air certainly in the last 12 years since I've been here in Dallas, but my partner and I are going, Hey, good morning. It's five o'clock and I'm about ready to ruin your day, but that's my job. Let me tell you all the things you should be worried to death about everything that is going to scare you for the rest of your day. We're going to give it to you in the nutshell right here. Now, you know, I mean, what a horrible way to wake up, but if we've got (laughs) a friend, if we've got you being a friend to tell us these things, maybe we won't jump out of the closest <laughs> building. Camille, how did you start out? How did you get to where you are now from where you started? I mean, you told us a little bit about about uh, your background in classical radio. Yeah. So then the time came where um, I just felt like I wanted to do, wanted to be a freelance voiceover person. I felt like that radio job had sort of run its course. So I left to pursue commercial work and um, ended up getting uh, hired to come to California for the PBS station. And so um, raising the kids in Utah with my ex-husband by that point in um, 1997, we did a week at a time with each parent. So I'd be in Utah for a week and then California for a week. And I just started to try to make contacts within um the uh, Southern California production scene. And um, anyway, in 2000, then when I was booked at Bill's studio and we started dating in 2006, I started going to his sessions and we, cause you know, we're fascinated by the work. So we try to go to each other's sessions as much as possible. And uh, so they knew who I was when they wanted to add some announcements to the food and wine festival at Disney California Adventure. By that point, Bill was the announcer at DCA as well. Um, so they wanted to pair a woman's voice and they said, you know, Bill's, Bill's girlfriend does voiceover. We should have her do these. So I, uh, I've done a few things. And then I also got to do the voice of the siren at the electronica show 
at Disney California Adventure a couple of years before I became the announcer there. So one day when they were about to open up Cars Land and the new Buena Vista Street, Bill had kind of put it on the calendar thinking, I know they're going to have some press events for this, so I should probably block out some time. The phone call came two weeks in advance. I was driving. He answered the phone and the gentleman on the other end of the line said, uh, we're going to open up these amazing new things at Disney California Adventure. And Bill said, I know. Where do you want me to be? When do you want me to be there? And he said, what's Camille doing? Bill said, well, <laughs> put her on speaker. She's driving. <laughs> so, that's when he asked if I would be the the park announcer for Disney California it was, Adventure. It was kismet. It yeah, really was. It was. It was. It's incredible. So cool, as I said in that moment, that Bill was not only replaced, but now he's my assistant. (laughs) No, but he's been he's been an incredible champion, and we've always loved working together. And we found that very early on, once we became a couple, uh, people would say when one of us was on a project or about to do a project, you know, I need a I need a male voice for this. Do you know anybody? Or I need a female voice. And so we've always marketed ourselves together from that point forward. That's tremendous. By the way, speaking of DCA, and Bill, you mentioned when I was working at KABC, which is uh, an unfortunate chapter in my career. But, you know, we have, (laughs) I was there for a year. At any rate, uh, my partner and I at the time, Amy Lewis, came to uh, KABC with me from Sacramento. She and I did the very first live remote broadcast from DCA before it opened. Yeah, we were there before it opened, and we had all the big wigs in uh, to meet us there uh, near the entrance to the park to do interviews and so forth. That's always been a great source of pride for me, just being able to tell that story. It's so special. It just is. Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely is. It's a really special place. The whole resort. Yeah. The, the, the interesting part of it is, and I will mention in passing that, that, uh, that in those days, KABC was owned by the Walt Disney Company. Right. Uh, but the, the wonderful part about hanging out with all of the, the radio people when, when remotes like this came along was such an incredible time because I got a chance to to meet people from from all over the country who were involved in radio and in some cases were just absolutely gaga over my gig. And I'm going, wait a minute, you're doing mornings WCBS in New York. Give me a break. You know, it's like, uh, and it, it's it's one of those things where once you're in radio, you never quite, you never quite get away from it. It's, it's, it's one of those things you and I were chattering this morning via email and, and I said, you know, well, <laughs> it's early. Go back to bed. No, I get up at I, the latest I can stay in bed is six o'clock in the morning. Right. I get it. Yeah. I totally get it. And, and when you're doing that, it's, uh, there is, it's its own kind of energy. Yeah. Well, I've I've seen 50 plus years of sunrises. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not going to change now. I'm a, I'm a yeah, morning no. person. But you know what? Yeah. The thing about what, what the two of you do 
in particular in that job, and I want to make sure that we're under, we understand that you do other voice work and that you're making your living. And I do want to ask you what's, what's coming up in your future outside of Disney work. But, um, the thing about the Disney work, and I know this has got to have been, uh, a huge source of, of, uh, pride and a tremendous amount of pressure and challenge for you personally is understanding that for all of the beauty of the parks, for all the magical touches they put in the details, the stories, the way it all works, the people who work there from those who keep the grounds absolutely spotless to, you know, the, the people that pre- prevent you, present you with the, not prevent, present you with the food. For everybody involved with that project at that park, it's you that welcomes us. You, your voice brings us the magic from the beginning, uh, for, you know, from the first time we get into a, a tram or, or enter the park. It's your voice that sets the tone for the magic of it all. And I don't, I just don't know how you could get away from that. I don't see how that, how, you know, even doing 70 pages of uh, copy in one day, I just don't see how that could, uh, get tiresome, maybe physically, but, but spiritually. Yeah. What a thrill. In, indeed. You, you've captured it perfectly. It really, every, just, I, there were no downsides. Yeah. It, just really wasn't incredible. How does it make you feel when you go to the park and hear your own voice? <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, it's humbling and it's and it's exciting. I think the first time we took one of our granddaughters to Disneyland, she was just about two years old. She could name all the princesses, so we figured, okay, she's time, she's ready. <laughs> and I had her on my. Her parents were off on an attraction. I had her on my hip on the parade route at DCA. Announcement comes through and she had spent quite a bit of time with us, you know, even at our booths. I, in fact, I was watching her one day and a last minute change came through and I needed to do the recording and she was too little for me to leave her outside the booth. So I brought her in with me and she sat very quietly. So, you know, she'd been around us doing this kind of work. So one of my announcements comes on and I looked at her and I said, who's that? And she said, you. That kind of melted my heart. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure I will did. tell you, I will tell you that there was no, no lack of pressure because um, if you'll remember back in, in the days when I started, there were not one, but two very large savings and loan associations in Los Angeles. My predecessor was charged with giving the, uh, all of the details of what went on at Great Western Savings after either John Wayne or uh, uh, Dennis Weaver did the opening bit. I mean, Jack was there to say, you know, uh, no, you know, blah, 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 you know, Great Western Savings, you know. But he had competition because the guys over at Home Savings, wow. They had George Fenneman, who had been Groucho Marx's announcer on You Bet Your Life for as long as I could remember. And George was every bit the actor, the, the, the friendly voice. You know, I, anybody who can sell a DeSoto has to be. 
right. And and Dave and I remember those days, but just barely. And it, you know, you start thinking about that kind of uh, that kind of bar to mm-hmm. meet every day that you're doing these things is is just an amazing feat as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, well, you can go into a radio station and sit down and do a shift and phone it in because you're just not you're just not in the mood to work at it. Mm-hmm. Can't do it with your job. No, and I think, you know, to Bill's point about his band mom story, that really is and I think that's something from our radio days as well. You're talking to one person and you're and as and I think that comes across if what you're trying to do is make sure that that person feels that moment and enjoys that moment, or, you know, it's not just informational. It's Mm -hmm. also trying to pass along a feeling. And if we can do that, I was just, I was just about to say that very thing. Even if you can imagine a family that's coming into the park what have you, they're getting out the tram and they're coming through the ticket gate and they're talking and they're getting everybody together. All right, you come over here and now first we're going to do this and first we're going to do that, then we're going to do that. And in the meantime, in the background, your voice is, is going. Even if they're not listening to every word, they have that sense, that feeling of yeah. of being where it is that that they desire to be. And it's, you know, it's 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 your expression that's given yeah. Given that, given that magic to the magic. Lynn Manuel Miranda said, "I want to be in with you know where the in the room where it happened." Yeah, and that's that's the yeah. way we feel. We want we want you to join us in the room where it happens. I think it's interesting the way that guests have come to feel so much and have such a connection with the park announcer voices. And it doesn't have a whole lot to do with us necessarily. It It's more the kind of the personification of the park. It's like right. the park is speaking, you know, and it just happens to be, you know, our, our voices. And I think that's one reason why it's so meaningful for people who have been going for some time yeah. and just, you know, really comforting to hear all of that. And on top of that, you got to understand when you go, ladies and gentlemen, the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of the Walt Disney Company, Bob Iger, <laughs> that that has a certain ring to it, you know. <laughs> it does. Where do you go from here? What's yeah. what's in the future for you both, so professionally? Yeah, so we're we're still doing a lot of work for the Walt Disney Company. Bill is the announcer on the Disney Princess Concert World Tour that's currently going. He's um which will be in the United States next year. Yes. It's now in Australia and China. Yeah. Um and you know, lots of projects for uh the D23 Fan Club and uh the Walt Disney Archives. I've done a couple of projects now for Walt Disney World in the last couple of weeks and um but then you know lots of non-disney work as well we do a lot of e-learning narration which we absolutely love learning something new about doing an eye surgery or phlebotomy that's right (laughs) you know training programs for um election poll workers i just narrated a whole series on that found it very interesting Mm. um 
you know, we do commercials for the Texas Rangers and we're super excited that they're in the World yes. Series. <laughs> yep. And as Bill mentioned, we are we are writing a book on the history of voiceover at Disney and Disney Editions is our publisher. Um, we don't have a publication date yet because we're just in the research phase, but man, we are enjoying going down those rabbit holes and finding out who all the players are. It's it's even bigger than we thought when we started. Okay. We now have almost 3,000 names up to the mid-80s of people who did a voiceover. Maybe it was one line in one short in 1938, or maybe it was someone who was part of a looping group. But according to the company records that we've been looking at, that's, you know, so it's it's a vast amount of people and talent who have made all and there of this are, happen. There are tons of stories that we want to tell mm-hmm. because those people all had lives inside and outside of Disney. And, and some of them were really amazing. We, we point very quickly to Thurl Ravenscroft, who was the, uh, the guy on TV that everybody recognizes when he sings, you're a mean one, Mr. Yeah. Grinch, you know, Thurl, Thurl did more things for for Disney parks than anybody I know, including Jack Wagner. In fact, I'm I'm sitting in a in a recording studio lobby one day, and Thurl is sitting next to me. And by this time, he's in his late mid to late eighties and uh, walking with a uh, with a walker, but he is still six foot seven high. Yeah. And, yeah, he's just kind of sitting there. And I said, Thurl, did you ever know Jack Wagner? And I, I missed the glint in his eye when he said, who? <laughs> and I said, you know, because I'm stupid. He said, I said, Jack Wagner, the guy who was voice of Disneyland. And he pushed on that on that walker, stood up all six foot seven of him and looked down on me and said, Bill, I am the voice of Disneyland. <laughs> not wrong. He's not when wrong. Think of all the he places. Did, yeah, he was. He was on the trains that you got on as you walked underneath the uh, the that you know that were above you. Hello, folks. Welcome to Disneyland. You know, and it's, and 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 did lots and lots of different attractions, including can, being Buff the Buffalo at the Country Bear Jamboree for years. You can hear, still hear him. You know, in the Haunted Mansion and on Pirates of the Caribbean. He's he's all really all over Disneyland. Yeah, he was one of Walt's favorite voices. Him and a fellow by the name of Paul Freeze. I was gonna. I was gonna mention Paul Freeze. I'm about to ask you. Yeah, about that. I mean, Paul, amazing voice. Paul's amazing voice still welcomes you at the haunted mansion. Yeah, and um, and it's in the his old- voice, it's his voice that takes you down the elevator or yes. the the yeah. stretching. Well, my way out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. What a talent. What he a was. Talent. He was amazing. And you know, on top of that, he was also the voice of 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 a villain in my my very favorite cartoon series of all times. He was Boris Badenov. Right. Rocky and Bull. Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> Boris and Natasha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Natasha darling, yeah. we go get squirrel and moose. That's right. <laughs> and then we have one other area that, <clears throat> excuse me, you wouldn't know I speak for a living. Um, yeah, but you clear your throat so well, my love. Oh, well, thank you. Anyway, one of the things that we have decided to do is to go back to our audio roots. You know, I mean, radio has gone through a lot of changes, as you know, but audio has 
has never gone away. You know, people's fascination with audio and it's kind of having a moment right now. So we're going to really lean into audio documentary, audio dramas, yeah. those sorts of things. And uh, we're I really think you're right. You've got a, got a tremendous future. Uh, that's what I've been talking. I've been talking with a lot of people in a special series of my podcast calling calling it the radio masters. And I talk yes. about people who, uh, who programmed, you know, created, uh, were the architects of, of the formats of talk radio and news yes. radio and music radio and yeah, asking yeah. him, okay, what's next? Because the medium is pretty much dead in terms of the way it wor- has worked to this point with a, uh, a giant tower out in the backyard of the radio station, broadcasting through the air that's not going to be the way it's delivered anymore but there is still going to be a a a need for human contact vocally yeah Yeah. and i i i honestly don't see how uh, artificial intelligence is going to take over that aspect of humanity no, it can't. And that's one of the reasons that, that we are still so gung-ho on audio. Yeah. Uh, one of the people that you will no doubt, if you haven't already, uh, explore in, in terms of the masters of radio is a fellow by the name of Norwin, Norman Corwin, who was, uh, he, he was one of the most amazing script writers ever for radio, having helped on, uh, John, helping John Houseman do, uh, the War of the Worlds, mm-hmm. uh, Halloween thing. And, yeah, yeah. and, uh, on top of that, probably a hundred to maybe even as much as 200 different serials that showed up on, on, mm-hmm. uh, various, uh, networks, net radio networks over the years. You know, he wrote, I think about half of the suspense series that it was it was a it was a wonderful way uh we were just watching empire of the air a couple of days ago which was on pbs uh many years ago uh ken burns special and uh one of the things that that was said was that radio's golden age was about as was about as fast as any golden age ever simply because it you know it was right after the second world war where it became a a source of information and and uh, up until the 1950s when david sarnoff did everything he could to kill it with his with his television you know i will never forget one of the uh, the the radio advertising bureau's commercials that said and and I have Stan Freeberg to thank for this. Um, he said, "Yeah, radio expands the imagination. Yeah. Television expands the imagination too, up to twenty-one inches." <laughs> that was before high-definition uh, TVs, obviously, but nonetheless, right. yeah. Listen, listen. Thank you so much. We uh, uh, we've been talking for a little over an hour. It's been absolutely delightful. I'm looking forward to your book. I uh, can't wait to uh, to to see it and and purchase it. And maybe have a uh, have you sign it for me. Um, I'm going to stay in touch because I met a couple of uh, of uh, great friends that uh, I really feel close to in terms of you know understanding what we're talking about. And I hope a lot of people have been uh, listening and watching, and we'll get a lot out of this too. So thank you very much, uh, Camille and Bill. Our pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Dave. Steve.